Hey everyone and welcome to Risky Business. My name's Patrick Gray and uh, this week's show is brought to you by Corelight and Corelight's CEO, Brian Dye, will be along in this week's sponsor interview to talk about the various merits and drawbacks of the three detection models, the SEAM model, the SOC triad model and the XDR model. Uh, Corelight, of course, maintains Zeek, the open source network sensor that is used in all three of those scenarios uh, and they also offer their own standalone NDR product. Um, so that interview is coming up later but first up, it's time for a check of the week's security news with Adam Boileau. And Adam, there's been a big brouhaha last week or so between Tenable and Microsoft. Uh, Tenable had found some pretty bad bug uh, in some Azure, in the guts of Azure and had notified Microsoft about this in March. They didn't patch it or fix it until last week. And even then, the fix was incomplete. And uh, Tenable CEO Amit Yaran uh, wrote a big, open, nasty letter to Microsoft saying that they're negligent and, you know, basically saying a lot of true things. And um, uh, Microsoft <laughs> then went off and fixed this bug. Look, it'd probably be helpful to everyone if you started off by explaining to us what this actual problem was in the first place. Uh, so the researchers from Tenable had been looking into uh, one of the features of like Azure Power Apps and a few other bits of, of Azure that build on that platform. So you can write your own code and have it kind of run inside Azure to do things. And quite often people are doing that to integrate with third-party bits of software and, and other components. And there is a mechanism for supplying your own code to run during this integration process. And this in code, integration code uh, ends up getting run by Microsoft in a uh, context that doesn't require auth. Like you, you can't, uh, you have to find where these secret kind of glue functions are running. But if you knew its name, then you'd be able to call like midway into this authentication integration and get it to send you the creds it's going to provide to some third-party service. So if you're integrated with Salesforce, you might end up with a token or valid credentials to talk into the organization's Salesforce. Um, and that essentially had no auth other than you had to guess the domain name and there were some mechanisms for kind of figuring what out what those are in that they're only really per tenant that you have to guess and after that you can enumerate them. So anyway, net result was you could steal authentication data for other things out of Azure functions with no authentication. Uh, and Tenable's, one of the Tenable's examples was we found creds for a bank. Um, and that- um, creds, creds for what though, exactly? Well, for whatever thing they were integrating with. Yeah, okay. Uh, which, you know, it could be other Microsoft stuff, it could be other third-party stuff, we don't really know in that case. But either um, way, creds either for way, bank thing, not good. Creds, creds for bank thing, not good. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, like, so this was, so then Microsoft, um, they reported to Microsoft, Microsoft went out to fix it, and Microsoft's, uh, you know, obviously it took some time, which is one of the aspects, and then the other was that, Microsoft's initial fix fixed it for new deployments, but not for existing ones. And that was one of the big criticisms that uh, um, it's had uh, about Microsoft's response was that they did not provide their existing customers with information about the risks that they were exposed to for, you know, obviously forever, but you know, that Microsoft knew about it for months. Um, yeah. And that's pretty understandable. Um, to be concerned about. And then Microsoft turned around and, and, and retroactively applied the fixes that they were rolling to existing customers basically the day after uh, Amit unleashed on LinkedIn. Yeah, which is, I mean, he, he's done us all a public service here, I yes. think. So good good job, uh, Amit Yaran. I guess, though, this is typical sort of Microsoft stuff, right? Yes. And, and even if they had have disclosed the bug and issued a warning and said people need to go and, you know, do this pointy-clicky thing. You know, we know now, 
the internet is old enough, cloud services are old enough that we know that people wouldn't act on that information anyway. The only way to fix this is going to be for Microsoft to actually make a change on its end uh, to roll out this fix and risk breaking stuff. And that's the thing that they didn't want to do. They did not want to risk breaking things for their customers. I mean, that's what I presume is behind this half fix, this initial half fix, right? I would imagine so, yes. that It kind of makes sense and it's, you know, you don't want to break people's production stuff for a bank, but, you know, the fact that we don't have a way to handle cloud cloud vulnerabilities well means that the cloud operator kind of has to take more responsibility and more risk in breaking things than we would have in the old model. And one of the things that... um, that Amit said in his post was like Microsoft doesn't issue a CVE for this bug because it's kind of in their code. It's not for outsiders to work with. We don't need to coordinate or name. Well, I mean, you know, we've had this conversation before and CVEs, I mean, they're issue trackers, right? Like you don't need an issue tracker for something that's going to be resolved on Microsoft's end. Exactly. And so like all of the sort of shared knowledge we've built up about how to communicate security issues and even like the whole model of full disclosure and um, and how we deal with bugs it kind of doesn't work I see I see what you I see what you mean which is we've we've tied disclosures to CVEs and that doesn't yes, work anymore it doesn't work anymore and so like and even just the way people think about a bug and think about security issues like it's so tied in that older you run software made by a software manufacturer on premise and you are responsible for maintaining it. Like that whole way of thinking just doesn't apply anymore. And we have to learn what the new model looks like and what our expectations of a vendor like Amazon or Microsoft or Google uh, will be with this kind of infrastructure. Are we willing but to I mean, trade but it? I mean, that was the whole selling point of this sort of infrastructure is you don't need to maintain it, you know? <laughs> well, and yes, right. That was predicated on the idea that they would actually maintain it for you, not be nervous Nellies about pushing something that might, you know, in some exotic configuration, break things for a cu- couple of customers so they're going to leave you vulnerable. Like, that's not what we signed up for here. No, it's not. Um, and it's just funny when we, you know, we, I spent so much of my early career in very conservative environments with very strict change control where you couldn't just YOLO stuff and prod. And now we've moved to the cloud for security and availability reasons. And they get to YOLO stuff and prod. And now they all, the customers of, of Microsoft don't get to manage those choices themselves. And as a result, we either get over-conservativeness or we get, you know, your entire business can be dead in the water because Microsoft changed one thing or decided to A-B well, test you or whatever else. So this is an interesting thing, right? I wonder if this cloud stuff has got complicated enough that we're at that point where patching these things is going to start breaking stuff. Now, in, the, in this example, we haven't seen reports of Microsoft fixing this causing problems for its customers. I mean, it may have no. happened. We just don't know about it yet, right? But, you know, you look at this next story we've got here from Bleeping Computer, which is some research into Microsoft Azure AD, uh, its CTS feature, which is a cross-tenant synchronization thing. And, you know, being able to use this for lateral movement once you've obtained access to a, to a um, you know, Azure AD instance. And I, you just start looking at some of the issues popping up in stuff like, you know, Amazon and um uh, you know, Azure, less so in GCP because no one uses it. But um, <laughs> <laughs> you start looking at some of these issues popping up and you want, you start wondering how much of this stuff is sort of semi-structural, right? Like you look at all of the problems that came with early versions of PowerShell, for example, right? Where everybody started deploying stuff with PowerShell and, you know, there were all of these fundamental security problems with it that when Microsoft started making changes did invalidate a lot of the prior work that people had been doing uh, around PowerShell. So so my, I guess my question is, you know, how close are we to the point where 
we're going to see some published research that Microsoft needs to act on to fix. But if they fix it, they're going to break a whole bunch of stuff and it just turns into this completely awful dilemma. I just feel like we're headed to that sort of <laughs> situation and it's not a good feeling. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Like there, there will come a point where someone finds some fundamental flaw and they are just screwed. Like they have to make you know, one bad decision or a different bad decision or, you know, yeah, we're absolutely heading to that world. And I think, you know, there are some examples, I suppose, of similar sorts of bugs. I'm thinking like uh, the .NET padding Oracle bug that let you disclose .NET keys uh, out of the web apps. And like that was a, I mean, I can't believe it lasted that long before we spotted it. Um, But also like that's the kind of thing that, you know, if, if that was in the cloud, if, that, if all of those apps were in the cloud and they had to deploy it, like, there would be a whole bunch of breakage and, you know, like doing the, the trade-off of how you would patch a thing like that, like doing change control in the, in the context of a company is kind of difficult but manageable. But doing it for thousands of organizations at once, all with different sets of requirements and expectations about availability and when a reasonable outage window is, or what, like it's just very, very complicated and you know, this particular one you you were talking to from Living Computer about the uh, synchronization of, of users between tenants, the uh, cross-tenant synchronization feature, it just, it really reminds me of early Active Directory features for doing like synchronization, like different uh, domains inside an individual forest and trusts and so on. And how, like the problems that this feature is trying to solve are the same business problems that a bunch of the Active Directory, like Trad Active Directory um, features were there to solve. And so all the problems are there and they're going to re-implement the solutions to them in the cloudy way. And then we're going to end up with, you know, all sorts of novel and interesting and new ways to attack them. Uh, And then, yeah, one day we'll get one that fixing it requires something really bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I, I guess what this all boils down to is today's cloud services, they ain't your grandma's cloud. No. Grandma's cloud was you can throw a virtual machine yes. into a box yeah. in a data center and not worry about the hardware. And that was fantastic. That was great. It was all singing, all dancing. And then things just started getting a little bit more complicated, initially with the stuff that would allow you to manage that process. You know, so there was the, the stuff around managing those things, but now it's all of these complicated services, right? Yeah, as, as it has moved further and further up the stack and away yeah. from being just virtual compute machines. Well, exactly. And now these cloud services, and we've said it a million times on the show, they're like the new operating system, right? But the problem is everybody's got their own way of using it and you're eventually going to bump into some fundamental problems here that require uh, big fixes. And, you know, I don't necessarily trust Microsoft to make the right decisions. I don't even know what the right decision is. Well, exactly. We're in pretty uncharted territory. And if you were... You know, if you were building a software platform to run every business on the entire planet, like that's quite a complicated problem. And that's, you know, where we have headed with Azure and and Microsoft's cloud services. And, you know, at some point, some really important tenant like the US government is going to turn around and say, like, you need to do more than you are doing, right? And obviously, the letters from Ron Wyden that we covered uh, last week are a good example of that. Like, there's just a lot of complexity here. And I don't know that Microsoft's. Maybe they've bitten off more than they can chew. Maybe, oh, I don't know. I don't know if anyone can chew it. I think that's more the, <laughs> the point, <laughs> yeah, right? We're a post, post-chewing world. Yeah, I'm just starting to feel a little bit tense <laughs> with yes. some of this, you know, especially around the Azure stuff because it looks like the way 
yeah, I don't know. This is what happens when you build a bunch of really powerful, easy to develop for cloud services and you haven't thought about stuff. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, all of the ways that we were used to thinking about compute in terms of servers and networks in the older, you know, infrastructure cloud way still kind of worked. Like you could still do firewalling, you could still, you know, control individual services and configure them. And, you know, our all, all of our hard-learned lessons kind mm. of still applied and now in the post-infrastructure and more whatever Microsoft is, <laughs> cloud, uh, like it's just crazy town and it's all moving so quick and, and yeah, it's really hard. Yeah, yeah, it is. Now, look, uh, some big ransomware news over the last week or so. Uh, there was a medical company in the United States, uh, Prospect Medical Holdings. Uh, they had their national computer system taken offline, which affected uh, patient care in something like, what was it, four US states, four or five US states, you know, to the point where they're turning uh, turning patients away. We also saw uh, a similar ransomware attack affecting a hospital in Israel uh, against, uh, against a medical center there, and they were turning away patients. So, you know, it just seems like, you know, ransomware crews are still attacking hospitals with impunity. Now, I think it's great that the, the FBI did a long-term uh, infiltration and shutdown against Hive ransomware and stuff. But when you see, you know, stuff like this, you wonder if there isn't space for organizations like Cyber Command, the more, you know, military and intelligence end of things, to go in and do somewhat more rapid, uh, you know, <laughs> baseball batting of these people, right? <laughs> Disruption, perhaps. Yes, the, yes, that's the word. Sorry. <laughs> the less meaty word. Um, yeah, it, it is really hard when you see organisations like hospitals and schools and, you know, we've got some other horrible examples this week as well. Yeah, um, yeah, there's the there's a school for children with learning disabilities. I think yeah. that one is in England and that's been, you know, attacked by Lockbit. You just think, you know... Airstrikes, <laughs> let's go, you know? <laughs> like, that, that's just, it's just unforgivable. To, like, yeah. it's a school for disabled kids. I mean, come on, really? Yeah. Really? Uh, and yeah, it would be nice to see some hounds unleashed, as we always love. But you see what I mean, right? Like, I, I, I think it is great that FBI is doing these sort of disruption activities, but they're focused on the long game. And I think that's a really valuable thing. Yes. But there's also that tension there, which is when you see stuff like this, you know, I, I feel like a rapid response involving wipers and doxing is, you know, probably warranted and probably going to be more useful in this case. And I understand that there's a tension there, right? Because if yes. you've got some, you know, cyber command, cyber hounds going around and making a lot of noise and a big mess, it might disrupt some of these longer term activities that the FBI is involved with. Right. Yeah. So I understand that there's tension there, but I, I think that anyone who claims to know what the correct balance is here between sort of speed and thoroughness, you know, I don't think anyone knows. I think no, everyone I really can have a theory, but I don't think anyone knows. Yeah, we're still all trying to figure it out, but uh, I don't know. It just would be nice to see, you know, the old uh, thrown off a bridge in St. Petersburg answer to some of these some of these problems. Oh man, you know, it really is that case, isn't it? Where you read some of this stuff and your blood just boils, and you're like, yes. "Look, if someone were to throw them off a bridge, like that would be a result." Yes, um, exactly. Certainly, and of course, there was uh, the Colorado Public Schools student data stuff like anyone who went to a Colorado public school between 2004 and 2020 had their data breached it, it affected staff as well and you know that one's made big news um, in the United States and all of these pieces here are from from the record and we'll link through to them of course um, they do excellent coverage of ransomware incidents John Grieg also has a report on a, a company called Brunswick Corporation that uh, they've calculated their losses 
uh, in a ransomware attack at $85 million because their operations were impacted. So, you know, it's a good week to sort of just survey what's been happening uh, in ransomware news and and to just go yeah okay still a problem <laughs> yeah I mean because the last the last few weeks we've been mostly going oh look move it's still happening move it's still happening and otherwise haven't really covered a whole bunch of ransomware stuff and I wouldn't yeah. want listeners to think that it had tapered off because it is still horrible and and terrible things happening to all sorts of people who don't deserve it uh, out there on the internet. Now, Ellen Nakashima at the Washington Post has a monster write-up on uh, some problems Japan has been having with intrusions uh, emanating from China. And, I mean, it's a very long piece, uh, but the the gist seems to be that the penetrations are pretty bad, that they were so bad that Paul Nakasone actually jumped on a plane to Japan, and that Japan is a long way behind in terms of its cyber defences, which would vibe with what I hear just yes, generally, yeah. right? Uh, and also that they're maybe not catching up as quick as they need to. I mean, how did I go for a, for a dot point summary there of the piece? Yeah, yeah I, th- I think so. Yeah, I mean, the, the story raises, you know, the US intelligence and military having concerns about sharing data with Japan because of the amount of, of penetration in their environments. And you get some hints of, you know, like there's some cultural aspects to like you know how you deal with dealing with widespread intrusions and how you deal with being honest with your partners and and discovering bad news and so on um that's all kind of like subtext which you know kind of makes sense i guess um but you know the change in the security environment in that part of the world i think means that japan you know has started taking things a bit more seriously they got a lot of work to do um seem to be the main takeaway yeah, I mean, the, the origins of Australia's ASIO, uh, you know, Domestic Intelligence Agency, that was spun up so that partners, the Brits and the Americans, could actually share sensitive stuff yes. with us at a time that we had a bit of a problem with people from certain other countries, uh, you know, sniff it around for information that might be shared, right? So, you know, this isn't a new dilemma no. uh, in that, you know, you, you want your partners to be able to protect the secrets that you share with them, but... I guess just with everything that's happening with China and Taiwan, and you know, it's uh, it's 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 becoming more important. I guess. Yeah, clearly Japan does need to work on upping its game and you know being a bit more, you know, valuing that. And we and we have seen you know the Japanese are starting to spend a bunch of money on domestic cybersecurity and supporting um, the sorts of things they have to do. We've talked a bunch about the intrusions into some like contractors, the Japanese government, the cloud services provided by the Japanese government. Right, they do have to take it seriously, and it sounds like they are beginning to, but as you say, a few years behind, perhaps. Yeah. Now, uh, Russia and North Korea are fighting. And it's great. Uh, we're not <laughs> fighting, but a North Korean APT crew has been going after a sanctioned Russian missile engineering company. So I guess this is a case of with friends like North Korea who needs enemies. <laughs> exactly, right? And not just any rocket manufacturer. This is uh, NPO MASH, which is one of Russia's biggest manufacturers, you know, and making uh, all sorts of things that, you know, if the North Koreans were up in there helping themselves to Russian, you know, missile tech, you know, I'm sure they would get a bit of a, a bit of a heads up, um, you know, leg up on their work. But yeah, I uh, 
uh, there's probably some awkward conversations to be had now between the, the Russians and the North Koreans about staying out of their stuff. When you've been kicked out of all of the US defense, uh, uh, you know, defense industrial base networks, you have to go and hack the Russians. Um, <laughs> unfortunate. Although, you know, Russian scientific research is up there, right? Yeah, and their rocket and missile tech are very long lineage and, and, you know, good work and all those kinds of things. So it's a sensible place to go. But yeah, it must feel bad to be thrown out of Lockheed and end, end up in, in MASH. <laughs> <laughs> now, look, speaking of uh, all things Russia, Ukraine. Uh, there's a really interesting report from Ukraine Security Service, the SBU, and uh, Darina Antonyuk has written that up for the record. She is based in Ukraine. Uh, so, yeah, Sandworm have been going after the battlefield management tablets that are used by the Ukrainians. That system, I mean, this is an assumption on our part. Uh, the system is called Delta. It's a Ukrainian-developed uh, Android-based battle management system. And what looks like has happened is uh, Russians have recovered some of these tablets from the battlefield and have tried to use them to gain entry, move laterally, drop malware with Tor C2 and some, you know, some. look, it's the sort of stuff we expect from Sandworm, uh, but it looks like they're trying to do some, uh, you know, battlefield-related intelligence gathering using some fairly sophisticated uh, methods. Yes, and it was it was an interesting write-up. I went and read the uh, Ukraine SBU's release that they put out about it. Um, and yeah, these are Android devices, and once they've got them, they've got access to the like the VPNs and the networks that they have um, connectivity to. And then they've got some tools for doing scanning. I mean, Nmap, I guess, tools for doing scanning, uh, and a bunch of other things for moving laterally around those networks. They seem to have been getting into the Android tablets in the kind of not really exploit way, like through open. Um, uh, debug service on the devices and then pivoting through those, as you say, dropping Tor and Drop Bear for SSH back uh, into the environment. They've also got some tooling in there specifically to go and find Starlink terminals and query them for information, which I'm going to assume includes their locations and things like that. Um, so that's a, you know an interesting interesting tidbit. Uh, the SBU does seem to have cut this, like nipped this in the bud, um, yeah. but it looked like quite a lot of work went into you know, building the tooling and get everything into a state that they could try and use it in the in the wild. But I mean, nipping this in the bud, I gotta say, is extremely impressive. I yes. mean, did that also occur to you that like, wow, okay, because it looks like this is Sandworm, you know, a crew that's very well known for being very good at this sort of stuff, doing what looks to be some fairly sophisticated things, and the SBU managed to squash it. And I just think, geez, how many how many orgs could actually squash something like this? Yeah, I mean, it's a great catch. And I mean, I guess they must have been kind of expecting it, right? If you've got devices that are in the field and being taken, right, you you know, you know, they're going to be looking. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure, it's, you know, one day in the future, we will hear more about these stories and understand exactly how they went down. But yeah, it certainly is, is pretty impressive. Yeah. I mean, again, is this cyber war? Probably not. This is uh, intelligence gathering, but it is it is very much the sort of you know, intelligence gathering that will have direct impacts on the battlefield, right? And that's, um, you know, that makes it quite uh, quite interesting, I think. So probably one for Tom to study a little bit more in, uh, in coming months. Yes. Uh, now we've got uh, time to put on our tinfoil hats, Adam, because we've got a <laughs> bit of a, a bit of a theory uh, bubbling up at the moment. Kim Zetter is, is leading the charge on this one. During Russia's occupation of the Chernobyl uh, power plant site in Ukraine, we saw radiation sensors around that site spike. 
But now uh, Kim is reporting that uh, uh, the researcher Ruben uh, Santamata has looked at the data from these sensors and concluded that it has been uh, manipulated. Walk us through what exactly Santamata is alleging here and then let's talk about it a little more. Yes, so uh, Ruben's, I don't think, done his talk yet at Blackhead, but is about to, um, and we'll, it's got a you know, big paper to drop with all of the details. But anyway, um, so there are a bunch of sensors, and there, uh, you know, there were radiation spikes reported by those sensors. The data ends up going back into some Ukrainian agency that collects it and then publishes it where it's consumed by the International Atomic Energy Agency and you know anyone else kind of interested in monitoring radiation sites around the world. Now, some of this data has spikes in it and some doesn't and the patterns don't make a whole bunch of sense and, and like it, geographically like if we've got one sensor that's between two others it doesn't report a spike and the other two do either side of it it like seems a little bit weird uh, and then the early explanation when these spikes were noticed was well it's russian tanks churning up the soil and leaving you know kind of radioisotopes stuff in the air that are being read by the sensors um and that you know past the initial sniff test, but I'm not an expert. And now Ruben says that some of these readings, you know, the, the regularity of them or the kind of geographical dispersion of them looks a bit sus. And his theory seems to be that they have been hacked at some point, either in the collection, like in the actual collection devices across the networks that collect them, in the Ukrainian systems that aggregate that data and then publish it to the internet, which I think is suggestion is that's probably the most likely place to do it but the questions of why and you know kind of to what end someone might want to manipulate those and if so why manipulate them in this specific way those seem a bit more unanswered to me well i mean you said it best i think when we discussed this before we started recording which is if you were in a position to change this data why would you change it in such a strange way yes yeah like why would like surely yeah if you wanted to you know cause some particular outcome you know fear amongst ukrainians or blame the russians for something you know in the other direction maybe like it seems you would craft more believable looking data Mm. and i don't know who benefits from just weird yeah and i mean there's a lot of things that can i mean weird data tends to have weird explanations (laughs) that you're not necessarily going to just think of off the top of your head. It could be all sorts of things. So I don't really, yeah. I I mean, he's going to drop a 100-page report on this, right? And and until we sort of have a look at all of it. And even then though, I don't know. The the whole thing just seems a bit odd, doesn't it? Yeah. Like we I think Kim Zeta brings up the suggestion that um you know one one suggestion they had seen was that maybe Russian electronic warfare things, you know, broadcasting signals or whatever were interfering with the collection devices, but we we just don't know. And we're going to have Maybe to one of that. them fell over. And was in the dirt. I don't know. Why are you buried in the dirt? So, <laughs> but see, this is the thing. I don't know, and we're not no. experts. We no. don't understand much about you know measuring radi- ambient radiation. We got no idea. But it's 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 just a it's just an odd claim, I guess. It is. It's just an odd claim. So yeah. I guess we'll just have to, yeah, we'll just have to see if anything else sort of unfurls from this, right? Yeah. It just you know it just seems weird, and sometimes things are just weird for not. Malicious reasons. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, you never know. I mean, there there was know. a lot of there was a lot made out of the fact that Russia were supposedly 
you know, putting everyone in danger by churning up yes. and disturbing radioactive material around that site. So, I mean, there was trenches in the exclusion zone. Like, that doesn't sound like a great, a great way to go. No, <laughs> no. So, I mean, it was advantageous to. Uh, it was certainly advantageous to Ukraine politically on the world stage to make a charge against Russia. That that um, you know that this was extremely reckless. It was also advantageous, I guess, to the Russians as a big scary thing yes. um, uh, to scare Ukrainians with. So you know, you can certainly see that. But was it? Would it have been worth it? I guess is the question, and you know, hard to know. Hard to know. Yeah. Hard to know. Now moving on, and we've got two stories. I mean, this isn't technically cybersecurity, but I do find this a very fascinating area. Right? We've got two stories about facial recognition technology and its use in the United States that are both fascinating, but for different reasons. The first one is a unit of the Department of Homeland Security has been using Clearview AI. This is uh, a courtesy of Tom Brewster over at Forbes. It looks like he's got some sources who've identified the technology that they're using, and it is Clearview. What they've done is they've fed in some CSAM material, historically seized CSAM material, uh, basically dead leads, to do facial rec on um, uh, individuals in captured in these images. And they've got hits on it, which has enabled them to arrest some truly awful people who've been doing disgusting things to infants. This is terrific. You know, this is a fantastic use of facial recognition technology uh, to to bring to justice the worst type of offenders that we have. So that's great. The second story is from the New York Times and is about how a eight-month pregnant woman in Detroit was arrested for carjacking because she was mistakenly identified by a facial recognition system as being uh, uh, an offender. And it's an interesting story because it points out a few things. First of all, all documented cases in which facial recognition has resulted in false charges being brought against someone in the United States, in every single instance, it's been a black person. So that's, you know, that is something that I think we should probably pay attention to. Yes. <laughs> and second of all, the story does a good job of pointing out the flaws in the processes used by police, right? So they will feed an image from CCTV or whatever into this into a system and say, show me someone who looks like this offender. The system will do that. And then they print off that offender's mugshot. And I think this woman had a mugshot in the system because of an unpaid license fee or something from 10 years prior. They'll take that mugshot, they'll throw it in a six pack and then throw it in front of a witness and say, do you see anyone who looks like the offender? Now, obviously, if the computer says that they found someone that looks like the offender, the witness is going to say so as well. And then bang, you've manufactured a positive identification of a suspect based on nonsense. Yes. Uh, which is which is certainly what seems to have happened in this case. Now, she was detained for 11 hours, you know, arrested in front of it, her child or children. I can't remember if it was uh, one or more. And had charges hanging over her for a month. Now, she's suing, obviously, and good luck to her. I hope she wins. The reason I find these two stories just great to read back to back is it shows us that there's there's room for policy development here where we get to capture the benefits of this technology but also prevent the misuse of it. And we've got two awesome examples of both in one week. What did you make of these stories, Adam? Yeah, I think the contrast obviously is the is the most striking thing here, right? I mean, this is, you know, good use of technology and bad use of the same technology uh, and, you know, trying to come up with a way to use it and regulate technology as it develops that captures both of those extremes, like it's really difficult. And, you know, I just don't think it's unachievable though. No, no, I mean, I, I hope it's not because like it feels like it ought to be, there must be some kind of middle ground where we can 
use it and not make quite such a mess. Um, but this stuff is just kind of scary when you see it used at scale I and mean, being able to compare against every photo that they've got on record, you know, billions or whatever it is, and find people um, who've done horrible things. Like, that's great. And then, you know, at the same time, the kind of the prejudice aspect of it or the giving witnesses in this case, you know, a selection of images, of course one of them is going to look like the person who yes. did it because, like, you know, there must be a way to resolve these <laughs> in a way that we can still use it rather than flailing around and coming up with bad regulation and you know everyone just getting scared ineffectually yeah Yeah. and that's and that's why i find it interesting because i think you know we've definitely got to be aware of the risks and i think another big risk with this technology is over enforcement is when it becomes such a powerful tool that you capture someone on cctv littering and then automatically send them a fine yeah you know (laughs) and (laughs) like that's the that's the problem is it becomes too tempting um, to enforce absolutely every single rule under the book and there's just such a there's such so much scope for this to be overused but then again you're taking down dangerous people with this who would otherwise still be free in the community yes. you know so really i think what yeah what we all need to do is formulate a nuanced considered approach to this sort of stuff anyway i just i just thought it was very interesting having those two pop up in one week I mean, nuance consider the approaches is the speciality of this industry. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, look, we've got one last, uh, you know, major area to uh, discuss this week. Um, I should have probably paired this with the cloud stuff earlier in the show, but there's some attacks against, uh, some new attacks against uh, AMD Zen CPUs. Uh, they, they're called Inception. We've also got some attacks against, uh, I think, Intel-based stuff called Downfall. But look, I think the TLDR from reading about all of these sort of speculative execution attacks and things like that and, you know, things like SGX not really being that reliable is hardware isolation hasn't quite panned out the way that we'd hoped it would. I think you and I, we've been talking about attacks against SGX and and similar tech for a long time and have always sort of thought, well, this stuff might get there eventually. It just just hasn't yet though, has it? No, it's really complicated um, and the... Threat. I mean, the threat here really is you are sharing a CPU with someone you don't trust, and mm. then all of the work we've had to do to make CPUs fast once we ran out of megahertz, um, you know, is coming kind of coming back to bite us. Most of these are in performance optimizations, you know, branch prediction, and, and all those sorts of things. And you know, it's hard to bolt that much complexity in, and then also provide security guarantees when it wasn't super clear. You know, especially in the case of an architecture like x86 or x64 that's kind of, you know, a bit long in the tooth mm. and has a lot of complexity in it, trying to make those meet, you know, security goals that we didn't really have when we started is hard. And, you know, reading both of these these bugs, and they both are great. One's from a Google researcher for the downfall case. There's another, a bunch of academics from Europe um, that worked on the other one. And, they're you know, it's super clever work combining all of the things we've learned so far and bypassing all of the previous preventions for these kinds of side channels and leaks. But, you know, in a big picture look, it's kind of hard to imagine this ever running out because of the amount of complexity in there. So I think at this point, this is all stuff that I don't think we've really seen it in the wild, but you get the sense that we will eventually. Yeah, I think so. And then once that happens, every single CISO in the world who's worth their salt is going to contact their cloud provider and say, we want our own cores. Yeah. And now, what's that going to do for compute demand? 
Yes. I mean, the, the economics of the cloud are already kind of challenging in a way. I mean, people are not finding it as cheap as they expected and you get nickel and dimed by Amazon every time you so much as do anything. You know, it's, you know, it was already kind of hard to justify, especially as you scale up. And if we go back in and say, okay, now we all demand our own cause, like maybe there's a the scope for moving, like the move towards very small, very numerous ARM platforms for uh, for cloud stuff you know if the cores are smaller and cheaper you can you know dedicate them to customers it makes economic sense perhaps more so than giant expensive intel or amd cores um but it does feel like you know the cloud but the whole the whole economics of this is based around shared utilization yeah, well yes right, right? So, so and that, that's that's what i'm saying is a risk in the future is that you know people will just say oh well we're not doing shared cores anymore and then you know we're all going to run out it's sort of yes. like, you know, when COVID hit and Azure started falling over because everyone was on Teams, <laughs> you know, like that, but much, much worse. <laughs> yeah, we were, when we were talking earlier, uh, I thought about, um, you know, the move from mass PHP web hosting, you know, where everybody's in one Apache instance with one PHP interpreter and all of the problems that came with sharing then, and we all moved to virtual machines for better isolation. And it does feel like maybe now... CPU side channels as the new PHP mass hosting, and we're going to have to move to dedicated cores for everybody. Uh, or you know, you could even you could even think of like you know shared Linux hosts, right? Yes, and then yeah. you know you privask your way into everybody else's business. Yeah, yeah, which we certainly did do that. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's just like this is the same thing. Uh, and and you know you think oh well it'll be right. You never know where you're going to land in a cloud environment. But I mean, if you're sneaky enough, get into a cloud environment, just start grabbing stuff. You know, who knows what you're going to wind up with? You're going to wind up with, you know, tokens, with SSH keys. You're going to wind up with all sorts of stuff if you are careful enough. Yes, exactly. And they're in the insides of everyone's cloud environment. So there's still plenty of interesting stuff to look at, even if you, you know, finding your exact target. I mean, maybe it's easier to go through the cloud provider first and then back down the other side of the, you know, of the architecture. Well, you know, people are smart uh, and I just don't see an end to hardware isolation bypasses like this because the researchers are just having a field day yeah. uh, with the gubbins of Intel and AMD's optimizations over the years. Well, and it's hard stuff to fix. Like patching yes. this stuff is hard. So, you know, as I said, it just feels like hardware isolation ain't working out. And, and, and it's probably not something we can pin our hopes on uh, in the medium term, at least. No, and, you know, we're just learning so much about security as we go along and it's hard when it's in the physical infrastructure, you know, when mm. it's, you know, you either have to throw the CPUs out or patch them in ways that cause significant performance degradation, which removes the benefit of sharing it in the first place. So, yeah, these are hard problems. Yeah, yep. InfoSec, building the plane as we're flying it since forever, basically. Yes. Uh, as we're yeah. crashing it. <laughs> uh, real quick, Let Me Spy, which is that uh, Poland-based spyware maker. They got owned in June. All of their customers' emails got uh, email addresses got leaked, as well as the data that they'd stolen from their victims. Um, they've shut down. Uh, good riddance, so that's, that's nice. Um, now, you remember a while ago, there was that married couple in New York, uh, including Ilya Lichtenstein, and his wife, Heather Morgan, uh, they got arrested because they'd been laundering the Bitfinex, uh, stolen Bitfinex Bitcoin. And we wondered at the time, well, where did they get that Bitcoin? Well, Ilya now has uh, pleaded guilty to stealing that Bitcoin, which was, um, what, 95,000 Bitcoin in their control at time of seizure. I think they stole 120,000. Yeah. So that was worth 71 million US dollars at the time of the heist and is worth, you know, I think 4.5 billion now or something like that. Uh, so... Yeah, they just they ran an elaborate money laundering scheme, but they have been caught, and now he has confessed to the um, 
to the original crime. So uh, sentencing coming up. Uh, and finally, Adam, uh, Android 14 has a couple of interesting features coming out, mostly around blocking on the, on the cell connection side. It will not allow you to connect to 2G anymore. And it will also prevent you from connecting to cell towers that use null ciphers. And this is an anti-interception measure and it's, it's, it's good. Yeah, this is going to give people who are, you know do look after a big fleet of Android phones the ability to turn, turn off and make them less vulnerable to stig rays and MZ catches and those kinds of things that involve impersonating cell infrastructure. And you know, most people are surprised when they discover that even their modern iPhones will fall all the way back down to 2G GSM given the right radio environment. And it's difficult to turn it off. Uh, so having these knobs available certainly very handy. And especially if you're, you know, if you're going to Vegas or you're going to somewhere where you know you think there's going to be jerks hanging around with fake cell infrastructure, might be handy for that. You know, it's funny because everyone's like, uh, you know, half the people are like, oh, you know, bring a burner, it's DefCon, and other people are like, don't be ridiculous, it's modern iOS. iOS, who's going to burn a bug chain on that? I think it was like <laughs> 2017. I was at DefCon, and my iPhone, I'm holding it in my hand. Went black, rebooted. <laughs> and the funny thing is that's the only time that particular iPhone had ever done that. Yep. <laughs> Which a- still made me think, well, you probably didn't just burn an exploit, but someone is doing something funky that's yeah. causing some sort of crash or something. And also, like, you put 5,000 people in a room with that many cell phones. I mean, it's even just the regular cell infrastructure can struggle a little bit with that. Although Vegas is better equipped than most for big crowds. But yeah, yeah, yeah. it's still, you know, I know I was... I think when I went to Vegas last, I got one of those like carrier settings update pushes. And I'm like, hell to the no. <laughs> yeah, hell no. Hell no. <laughs> uh, it's a witch. It's a witch. Yes. <laughs> Basically, yes. Um, oh, also, I'm going to link through in this week's show notes to a piece by Catalan in his uh, you know Risky Business News newsletter. He seems to be like one of the only people in InfoSec who noticed a report from TASS uh, that says the Russian government is pushing a new law which will enable it to delete the personal information of people like FSB agents from various public data sources uh, or government data sources, I should say. And this is to stop groups like Bellingcat and Alexei Navalny's <laughs> team from digging it out and doxing people as like not being people who are fond of certain types of church architecture and are actually doing Novichok poisonings, right? Because like a lot of that OSINT is is enabled by leaked data sets. Um, and also probably as a bulwark against Western intelligence collection so they're, they're actually passing this law saying oh well we're going to withhold this data but uh tom uren's doing some work on this as well and i think the feeling is that it's only going to get them so far because it was actually the absence of people's data from the opm data set that unmasked them as cia officers under state department cover so this is a really interesting thing that i don't think many other people are reporting on uh so catalan's report is up and Tom's newsletter tomorrow will have further analysis. And Tom and I, of course, will be discussing this uh, tomorrow. But that is actually it for this week's news. Uh, it's been a lot of fun, as usual, and we'll do it all again <laughs> next week. Thanks very much, Pat. I will talk to you then. That was CyberCX's Adam Boileau there with the check of the week's security news. It is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Brian Dye, the chief executive of Corelight. Corelight maintains the open source Zeek Network Sensor, which is the industry standard data source for network security events. Uh, They also make a commercial version of Zeek that's more powerful and customizable than the open source version. And they have a pointy clicky NDR version of the product as well with a full GUI and, and all of that good stuff. So... 
Brian joined me this week to talk about the three main models for detection. The SEAM model, the uh, SOC triad model, and the XDR model. Who are they for? What are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? Here's Brian Dye. At one end, you've got this idea of, of a fully centralized, typically large-scale SOC, where it's all about, give me all the data and all the detections you can. I want to put it all in one place could be a huge Splunk environment, it could be a data lake, but I want everything in one place. I want all the data you can give me. At the other end, you've got what Gartner used to call the SOC triad. And this is why it's a mix of kind of analysts and different kind of people's interpretations here, where you'd basically have a domain-specific tool uh, for each of your domains. You'd have an EDR, you'd have an NDR, et cetera, and then you'd put just the alerts into your SIM. Uh, and that's great for some things and not great for other things. And then you've got this emerging kind of XDR architecture where you're actually doing analytics and even alert triage in a, on a per domain basis, but you're still putting all the data in one place because you're actually adding cross-domain analytics and you're adding thread hunting. So I kind of think of it as you've got this fully centralized kind of data lake SOC, you've got the SOC triad, uh, and then you've got XDRs, the third design pattern. I mean, some of this stuff already in, you know, uh, how you've described this, some of this stuff is actually collapsing, though, like, as we speak, right? Like, I had an interesting interview with someone from Snowflake uh, who came on as a guest of another sponsor talking about, like, their approach to, like, just building that, uh, you know, what we all call that that data leak, right? And then you can have, um, you know, different applications to do stuff to the data once it's there. And then you've got, you know, companies like Panther, which are, you know, trying to be, I guess, a bit more like the the next generation sim. So they're a little bit splunky. They're a little bit data lakey. You know, they they actually do run on, on Snowflake. So, I mean, I get what you're saying that there's these three categories, but it seems like, you know, the, <laughs> it could be four categories next year or six or two. <laughs> it could. And that's what's so interesting is that the analytics architectures themselves are evolving. But I'll tell you what's there's a continuum here of what's actually t happening. And the constants are more data is always a good thing. More detections are always a good thing, right? Those are the constants. What's actually varying here is how much essentially cross-domain analytics you can do, uh, how much threat hunting you want to do, and how much security engineering staff you have to kind of make those things happen. Because if you think about the bookends here, right? If you've got this kind of, call it the data lake type strategy, it's because you've got a big security engineering team that can build all the workflows and handle all the cross-domain analytics for this massive amount of data you put together. At the other end of the spectrum, the kind of SOC triad world, it's because you really don't have a security engineering team. So you, you're willing to go with kind of these stovepiped kind of domain-specific tools because that's all the engineering talent you have. And then, you know, you've got this middle ground, this XDR ground that's emerging where you're getting more out-of-the-box functionality, right? The, the, the XDR vendors are doing more of the cross-domain uh, cross analytics. So you get a little bit of the, of the best of both worlds, right? Where you get domain-specific analytics because you're triaging those in some specific tool, but you've got more that's centralized that enables a little bit more out of the box because, you know, the folks that are driving that strategy, they don't have 100 people or, or more in their security team, right? Which is typically what you see in those big data lake environments. You know, and, th and that's where this stuff gets interesting, right? Is because it's a lot of what's going to work best for an organization is going to depend on so many different factors, right? It's not like you could just say large companies need to use this one, small companies need to use this one, you know, companies with big security staff need to do this, need to do that. How how should organizations be thinking about which approach, you know, how should they evaluate like these approaches and, and pick one? You know, I, you absolutely hit it. There, there's a couple of variables here. 
Uh, number one is is actually how big your security team is, and specifically the security engineering team. Because mm. if you've got like you may have a SOC and you've got a bunch of analysts, but if all those analysts are being supported by two people in security engineering, there's only so much customization and analytics and whatnot that you're going to be able to do. And so that will kind of be a pretty heavy lever in driving which how much out of the box functionality you need. Uh, versus how much you can afford to go create with with in-house kind of engineering work. So that's a really, really big one. The second big one is how much are you enabling threat hunting as a discipline? Because if you have no desire or no bandwidth to be able to go drive threat hunting, then that SOC triad starts to look a lot more interesting, right? If you want to do threat hunting, then you need to be in one of the other two architectures because otherwise you don't have your data in one place. It's really hard to do threat hunting on a per domain basis, right? Um, and I think the third one really is how much ability do you have to do in-house detection engineering? And you know that sounds like a fancy word, but bear in mind that also runs a huge spectrum, right? If you're kind of going and taking the initiative, going download a bunch of Sigma rules and kind of bringing those into your sim, you've done a level of detection engineering. And by the way, nice work. Keep it up. You're ahead of the curve, right? That, that's actually really great. All the way up to folks that are truly have kind of aggressive kind of red team programs or actually building new custom analytics based on their unique domains and, and unique attackers that are going after them. So to me, those are the three big things that, that folks are kind of making this decision based on. I mean, I just realized one of the reasons that you can talk about this is CoreLight's probably one of the only companies I can think of that supports all three. It, it is one of the, re it is exactly the reason <laughs> that, that we see this is that you yeah. know, we've, we've kind of thought about the world very differently than a lot of providers, right? Because there's so many people trying to so many vendors, I should say, they're trying to fight the analytics game. They want to fight for the SOC analyst eyeball. And, and that's awesome because that competition generates great things for defenders and, and there's a lot of good that comes from that. But we've had the opposite view, which is let's make sure that we have the best data you can possibly get and the best detection you can possibly get. And then let's put that in wherever it needs to go, right? And the, it turns up that wherever it needs to go has a lot of places it can go. And so, yeah, yeah that's why we see the spread here. No, no, I get it. I mean, you know, Corelight, obviously you've got the sensor and then you've got the, I mean, more recently, it's like a year or two old, you know, you've got the sort of fully featured NDR thing. And I'm guessing you license probably to other vendors for the XDR side of it. And even if you're not licensing to them, you're providing compatibility for their stuff to do the network collection, right? Yeah. And one of the things that we've seen a lot of success with recently is is partnering not just with the XDR providers, because they're the ones that are driving that middle column. And we've always worked with the SIM providers and the data lake yeah. providers for, for obvious reasons, but also working with the instant response teams, because a lot of them have this, have this same problem in a very acute way, right? They need fantastic data to go and actually find and diagnose really advanced attacks. And that tends to be a sweet spot for us. So yeah, the SIM providers are big partners. The XDRs are big partners again, on, across all three of these architectures. And then the IR groups are the other folks that we love working with. I think, you know, before we got recording, you know, you, we, we spoke about how one of the reasons we're having this conversation is that companies don't often make a conscious choice really with this stuff and they just sort of wind up where they wind up. Um, you know, how does that happen? Does this stuff just sort of evolve out of a team? You know, maybe the CISO is just telling various people to, to handle it. And you just wind up with this sort of inertia that that you know, and that, and that's how Babby is made. I mean, like, does this do do people sort of wind up picking one of these three approaches by accident? I guess is one of the questions. Well, I think actually, I don't think it's by accident. Actually, I think there's everyone who has a SOC has a SOC architecture now based off of the available technology five, ten, or maybe even fifteen years ago. And so the key word that you hit that I totally agree with is inertia. 
it, there is there it, it takes effort to go change that analytics architecture. And what's been happening in a really interesting way, just in the last two or three years, is the architectures that are available, the technology that's available to do the analytics has really changed pretty radically from what was there 10 years ago. So I think the call to action for folks is to recognize that inertia is real, recognize that the decisions we all made five or 10 years ago were probably the right ones at the time and may still be the right ones now, but it's worth stepping back and asking that question because there, there really are interesting pros and cons of each of these big deployment architectures. There's very different technologies available in a bunch of different categories that enable these to be you know, easier or in some cases even feasible in ways that they weren't five or 10 years ago. So I think the key is step back, recognize that inertia is a thing and say, now is the time to think about, gee, are we good or not? And if we're not, put in a plan, put in place a plan, you know, start next year, whatever that's going to be. You know, a lot of folks are thinking about budgets for second half, budgets rolling into next year, things like that. What are the things you might want to do differently? Now's the time to ask yourself the question. I'm not saying that it's necessarily right for everybody to change, but it's definitely right to ask the question. Yeah. So let me let me see how I go with some pros and cons on each of these three, right? Let me just take a stab at it. I'm guessing the, you know, the massive data lake Splunk style approach, uh, it's the most flexible if you have a big engineering team. It's also the most expensive, but if you are successful, it's extremely effective. So, and that's a big if, right? Because there's plenty of people who who make mistakes with that stuff. So, I'd imagine that's a rough breakdown on the on on that side of it. Uh, with the sock triad, it's like, well, it's almost like, you know, it, it's a, beyond a starting point, right? But it is at that case where you know you've struggled to get the budget from the board, right? You've got to stand something up. Here it is. We're going to take all of these logs, throw them into a place. If we have to do, if we have to actually do some IR. It'll be a pain in the ass, but at least we can actually do it. And we're getting some meaningful detections along the way, but it's not gold standard. You know, we're not a defense contractor worried about APT crews, right? We're, we're a cardboard box factory, but we, we need a, a bigger security environment because I don't know, we make classified boxes. Or so. I don't know. And then there's the third one, which is the XDR, which as you pointed out, is a blend between the two. And I'd imagine the advantage there is going to be cost ease of deployment and the disadvantage with that one is going to be the absolute lack of flexibility and dumb vendor stuff that they've they've made it do dumb things and you can't turn them off. Am I about right with all of those three breakdowns? Yeah, you're pretty close. I mean, there's, there's only a couple tweaks I would put in. Number one, if for the very large environment, it is the most expensive in raw dollars. But if you compare that to one of the other two architecture at the scale of that yeah. those things are actually at, it may be even more expensive. So I actually think that one gets more cost-effective at large scale, but the raw dollars are still super large, right? Yeah, so Splunk's licensing looks really expensive until you look at per-user licensing for XDR across a mega enterprise. And not not just the individual tools, but think about a lot of these organizations will have 50, 100, 200 analysts. So the amount of training and workflow standardization and then customized tool sets and you know SOAR integration and all this other stuff that's going on there, there's there's a lot kind of baked into that, right? Uh, and then to, to the SOC triad piece, it, it is a great place to start. I totally agree with you that the having the data is the first non-negotiable, right? Because you can't solve, I don't have the data. Um, but the, what you're really trading off is swivel chair integration when you have to go look across, which as you mm. said, right, you know, it's going to be more of a pain in the ass, but at least you can actually get it done. And then on the XDR side, I think it's less about being locked into what the vendor can do because you, you've still got all the data in one place, right? That's kind of the advantage. I think the the, the, the catch is that all those solutions are still on a very fast uh, innovation trajectory, right? 
So what the XDR providers could truly do with cross-domain analytics now versus 12 months ago versus 24 months yeah. ago looks totally different. It's so, getting better. <laughs> yeah, it's getting a lot better a lot quicker, yeah. All right, Brian Dyer, thank you so much for joining us uh, for this conversation. Always very interesting stuff. Appreciate the time, Patrick. Fun as ever. That was Brian Dyer there from Corelight. Big thanks to him for that. And big thanks to Corelight for sponsoring this week's show. And they've been a sponsor for a while now too. Uh, and as I said, Corelight's network sensor is the industry standard for network detection these days. So if you're not familiar with Zeek, uh, that's probably something you should remedy. Not gonna lie. Uh, and that is it for this week's show. I do hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back tomorrow with another episode of the Seriously Risky Business podcast with Tom Uren in the Risky Business News RSS feed. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening.